Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 185 with my guest, Dave Snyder. Dave is the founder of Guilford Sound. Uh, It's a beautiful recording studio up in Guilford, Vermont that So has done many sessions at. I've done a few uh, mixed sessions for some dance projects I've worked on. Um, If you get a chance to check out www.guilfordsound.com, you absolutely should. uh, It'll blow your mind. And if you're looking for a place to go record, check them out. Uh, Also, Dave is just one of my favorite people on the planet. He is uh, one of the most genuine uh, and thoughtful human beings I've ever come across. And he um, has, over the last couple decades, built a really great community, along with his his wife, Sarah, um, who I talked with a couple days ago. Um, A really great community, and and one in which, uh, to me, demonstrates the true definition of what a community can be. It's, it's not a community. It's not a community without complications, but it is one that sort of takes into account every person in the community in a really organic way. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I certainly did. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Snyder. Um, all right. Well, let's gavel this to order. Uh, Dave okay. Snyder, I appreciate you doing this. I've known you now for. I was taught to said the same thing to Sarah. I feel like I've known you my entire adult life. If my adult my adult life started when I joined So Percussion. Um, you, which I basically feel like that's the case. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I ran, I, we, I crossed paths with you and so did So Percussion back in 2000 and I want to say seven, eight, eight 2008. Yeah, seven. Yep. Started in seven. For a project called Music for Trains. And um, that project really was, I mean, it was, I think you were, uh, you were sort of Sarah's husband and doing your own thing and but then as you build a recording studio since then and you i've since learned that you are like one of the world's authorities on like acoustics and building studios and mics and all of these things and you've recorded several of the so albums um you've been in the room with us when we've recorded those and i kind of just wanted to pick your brain a little bit and get to know you personally a little bit better like i think i have a little bit of your story like there's little pieces and parts that sort of get to where what I know of you, but can you just take me back to like baby Dave Snyder and what got you into like you drummed with a, a band called Ruth Ruth. Yeah. And, um, which I think if you're in the punk world and you know, that scene, you maybe not, maybe punk is the wrong word, but you know that. Oh, it's definitely the wrong word. And I will, will I please, will go into that. Please. Go ahead. But, or ska or whatever it was that, uh, the, uh, the, the genre, but, but, Ruth Ruth is not an unknown band in that world. And um, I kind of just want to, can you just back up? Like what got you into music? What got you into drumming? Um, were you in a musical family growing up? Like what no, got you into really. that at all? Um, uh, I just always loved music. I loved listening to music. So I was just a music fan growing up. And it was really the one, you know, I could go into my room and kind of escape everything and just listen to the radio back in the day when people would listen to the radio. So I would Mm -hmm. have, um, you know, whoever the DJs were, Pat St. John, Carol Miller, the classic, well now classic rock, but they were just the rock DJs at Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would, uh, secretly also listen to like the, um, the adult contemporary love song station, but I wouldn't tell my friends. I, I remember changing the dial back to PLJ just in case a friend came over and they, I didn't want them to see what I was listening to. I listened to the crazy. oldies a lot growing up. So like I, I would yeah. listen to like, Oh yeah, sure. I listen to Metallica and Slayer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I'm like yeah. hiding and listening to, you know, Sinatra, <laughs> Sinatra in my, my, my spare time. 
yeah yeah so um no i was just a music fan um and then drumming what, what, what were your folks musical like what like what no. did they, they have music in the house what did they do my mother would listen to records you know my dad is a he loves classical music so mm-hmm. you know we had a record collection of maybe 50 records in the house that i listened to over and over again we just had a record player and um this was in the early 70s and um that's just what you did and then and then i ventured into the radio world and there was this whole other thing so i i didn't i had an older sister who was not really musical either didn't really explore anything beyond just like the the mainstream music so um i didn't have that like you know older sibling who knew all of the cool underground things so like you know in terms of like you know punk rock if you're going to talk about punk rock or the hardcore scene or mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff um i wasn't exposed to any of that stuff when i was a a teenager although i had a good friend who was uh sort of you know by osmosis just by hanging out with him he was he was going into new york in the uh early 80s like 1981 82 and going to the the um cbgb's used to have this sunday matinee show that was all ages so all the bridge and tunnel kids would go in and and play city kid for a day and you know pretend that they were you know edgy and mm. you know well and just for back. For, folk, for folks like myself who grew up in a cornfield um, with very few tunnels in my life, um, what is a bridge and tunnel kid? A, sub, a suburban kid of New York City. You know, the only way to get into the city, you had to drive through a tunnel or go over a bridge. So it was all the kids from Long Island, Connecticut, and New Jersey, you know, who would come in and try to kind of act the way they thought city, you know, being in the city was, you know, how you were supposed to act, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, you know, edgy, aggressive, you know, so like whenever you see like a super aggressive driver, you look at the plate and it's always New Jersey or Connecticut. <laughs> it's never the people who are living in New York are just like, <laughs> excuse me, just, you know, trying to just live with each other, you know, right, and this, right, so there's right. this weird disconnect uh, or this idea, or at least that was my, my experience, which I slowly learned as I moved into the city and then learned how to like, you know, kind of cohabitate with all these people it was much easier to hold the door for people than to push out push people out of my way you yeah know, well did vice versa when you were growing up did you have any like um what professions were your parents in like were you i mean when i was growing up my mom was a french and spanish teacher and my dad sold soda like he was a he drove trucks and delivered pop not that i ever aspired not to be that but i was just well you know this is these are career paths and they never discouraged me from music but there was like the options for me growing up, that's what I saw for you. Where was your head at? What were you thinking you were going to be when you were growing up? Did you have any desires? Uh, I was terrified. I mean, I grew up in a really affluent suburban environment Mm -hmm. with a lot of pressure of, you know, you have to follow this specific path or your life is going to be in shambles. Like you're, you're going to, you know, so I, which was just very, there was this idea that if you didn't have a white collar job or, and I don't even know if this was the actual, you know, um, if this was like instilled in me or if I just made this up in my head. But that feeling I had was I would be a complete failure if I had to do, you know, go into like a blue collar job or something, something mm. like that. So mm. it was, you know, there was a lot of pressure to, you know, get through high school, get into a good college and then get a job, you know. And um, so my mother was a homemaker mm-hmm. and my dad was a computer programmer early mm-hmm. on. He started, he was interested in computers all the way back to the you know early sixties and, uh, <clears throat> and then just worked. He was just a nine to fiver at a, at a brokerage house working in their 
this is pre-IT department, but just working in their information technology, whatever that was at the time, mm-hmm. compiling data and making and disseminating it to people. Um, and then uh, he went off, ventured off with a, a, a co-worker to develop a, a product that would, you know, basically a reporting product for um, brokerage houses to mm. put data together and, and disseminate that information. Uh, so they started a company where there's this sub- subscription-based program where you could get these just like books of data on different uh, corporations and how they were doing and uh, mm. you know so analysts could make decisions about investing mm-hmm. and then then and then they just rode the wave of the uh, the um, online dot com world mm-hmm. and never never looked back so it was a really successful company um, the so that that pressure I was talking about that internal pressure that I felt both of my parents were never they were never really I mean, we didn't have like lots of heart to hearts, but there were a couple of, of key moments where, like my father, when I, I asked if I could go to music school and, um, and he, he gave his full blessing for that. And, and frankly, it paid for it. I mean, you know, he was, he, he, and he was perfectly happy with the, the idea of me pursuing something that would impassion me rather than, you know, just knowing that there was like job security. So that was an eye opener at the time. Hmm. Um, to be able and to to know that um, you know pursuing something other than a you know traditional career path wasn't wasn't a failure, but in the school system I was going through at the time, it it really was. I mean, that was just kind of in the air. Like if you weren't following that path, you were really setting yourself up for disaster. So did he? Do have you ever talked to him about about why he had that heart to heart with you the way he did? I mean, the I'm curious what little I know about the tech world, and especially knowing the sort of time period your dad was in that world, like there's a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation and a lot of experimentation and unknowns, which those four are basically the f- first four things that you're, are on your degree from music school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, true. That's like really so true. Th- there's a lot of overlap. I've, I mean, even though you, you said your dad went to a nine to five and yes, there's like a lot of differences, but he was making something up out of nothing. And like, that is a very artistic sort of, premise to start with even you know yes yeah it went into brokerage it's really true you know he wasn't he wasn't the um the creator he wasn't the visionary um but he was able to see the vision Uh, this guy presented this idea to him and i remember quite clearly my dad pulled the family my sister my mother and i uh to the me to the uh kitchen table we all sat down he said look you know i had this steady job Mm -hmm. this was 1977 Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, you know, I have this opportunity to start this small business with this one other guy. We're going to get an office. Uh, the, the office was 400 square feet. It was a two room office um, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we're going to and we're going to try to make this thing go. And he didn't go into details of what the company was. I was uh, at the time I was seven years old at the time, you know, so mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know. Um really what that meant but he just said you know we we may this may fail spectacularly and then i'll have to go out and find another job i may be unemployed in six months you know this mm. we may run out of money immediately and then just be stuck with a loan that we have to pay back we have to figure out how to pay it back when we get you know if we have to go back to another job anyway they, they never had to look back that never happened it was a very successful company from from the very beginning they had something like 35 percent growth every year mm. every single year for like 20 years before they they cut out. Mm. So, um, 
so he understood like, oh, if there's, you know, a vision and passion and hard work, it can really add up to something spectacular. And um, yeah, so he's, he was, uh, I think I, there, there was an element of that, that he, you know, he wasn't afraid of people pursuing things that made them happy. Uh, mm-hmm. that they, you know, they ultimately lead to living a fulfill, fulfilled and successful life. Uh, you know, again, you know, I, I, whenever I talk about this stuff, I just, I'm so acutely aware of the fact that this is all, there's the presupposition that there's an infrastructure around us, that the lights will always be on, that the roads are going to be paved, plowed, tended to, my garbage is going to be taken away, I'm going to go to the grocery store, food's there. There's so much stuff that's in place that just happens. Thank God it happens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I happen to live in a place where that stuff is relatively stable, at least for the time being. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I grew up in an environment where I didn't have to think about any of that stuff. Even when we weren't, you know, we were living paycheck to paycheck, we were never hungry ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, you know, we grew up in a very small, modest house in a town full that had, you know, pretty wealthy areas in mm-hmm. it as well. You know, it was, it was relatively wealthy, you know, and stable and comfortable and safe and all that. So, you know, I had the privilege, I had the, um, the, the luxury of dreaming about this stuff and fretting over this, this supposed, you know, failure of, of, of not staying in that community and having to live somewhere else where I could, you know, you know, whatever that would look like. So it's hugely, as I grow up, I realize just how hugely distorted that reality is. It's just so, it's so, you know, based on all of these, um, these foundational things that most of the world, people just simply don't have. They, Mm -hmm. they're subsistence farmers. They just, they just, or whatever, they just don't have basic, um, quality of life, um, things, components to take, you know, to just live comfortably. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm acutely aware that, um, very grateful for it. And I love the idea of sharing it. So um, that's where we're at now. Mm-hmm. We, we live in Vermont. I have this beautiful ivory tower studio at the top of a, of a hill in this uh, secluded area, very close to conveniently located close to grocery stores and 24 hour services. Um, and I, and I, I, I have the exact opposite tendency of wanting to sh- shut ourselves in and just be, you know, insulated from, you know, I, I like the idea of sharing it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and understanding, you know, what a gift it is. So that's kind of where we're at now. Well, it's interesting. I mean, when you talk about, um, I mean, there's lots of, lots of conversations going on now about reality. When you say distorted reality, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this and what I know, I mean, it, it was your reality. It wasn't distorted. That was your reality. Yeah. There happens to also be, thousands and thousands of other equally valid realities that are constantly butting up against each other. Um, and I, for me, I'm, I'm trying to tease out the, like, what is, you know, there are, there are people who have opportunity and privilege and don't do anything with it. And then there are people who have zero opportunity and privilege and because of a million different reasons, grab onto it and are really, really go for it. You could have the mind of Elon Musk, but if you're lazy and don't do anything with it, you're not going to put anybody into space. You know, 
maybe, right. maybe Elon's a bad example, but like, you know, the, this, there's a weird complicated web that goes into making anybody who they are. And I'm curious for you. I mean, I want to get to your giving back to community because you do you, I picture you, um, not just as a recording engineer, but you are an advocate for other things. Like I know that you support the boys and girls club in Brattleboro. You're very community minded. And when I go to Brattleboro or Guilford or anybody, and I say the name Dave Snyder, they're like, Oh yeah, Dave, like they all know who you are, which is a sign not only just of your gregariousness and the way you are with people, but that you have made an attempt to be in your community and at least be present in ways that are genuine. And that reads to people, the hunter who I met who only sees you once a year because they come and hunt on your property sees you the same way. So percussion does like, and that says something to me about you, but I want to like back up a little bit. So you moved your, you got on the bridge and tunnel and moved to New York um, at some point in your life. What, what was your experience like? What what did you do? What was your like? You played. Can we can you talk a little bit about your time playing in in Ruth Ruth and sort of what sure. what that world was like? Well, so you? I first went to Marlboro College in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I met that's right. Sarah, whom I'm married to still. And um, that was we, by far we, the best we, decision you ever made in your life, going to Marlboro. Yeah, for day. sure, for sure. And uh, and we we moved when I um, decided to go to music school. Um, she decided to come with me to New York, so we moved to New York. And uh, I was in music school, which was soul crushing for me. Um, I don't like, again, not not having the experience of knowing really what I I knew I wanted to learn how to play an instrument. Well, Mm -hmm. Um, I went into the jazz program uh, naively thinking that. Sure. Yes, it did translate to skills on the drum set for, you know, uh, the, the rock and world role world. But I, I am a rocker. I'm not a jazz bow and I never will be. So a, I basically, wait, wait, hold on. what's a jazz bow, a jazz bow, just a jazzer, you know, okay. like a bebop guy, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it. there were kids. It was such a weird scene. Anyway, I, I don't need to go into. I love that. You could be like, what do you play? I play this. What do you play? Yeah. I also play this. And everybody yeah, knows yeah. exactly <laughs> what music you're talking about. <laughs> spang, spang, yeah. lang, spang, lang, yeah, spang, yeah. lang. Even yeah. though this is like probably objectively more difficult to do in a, like in a legit setting than, than most oh, yeah. other drumming settings. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's true, but you know, it's really, it, it is hard to play a backbeat. Well, yeah. you know, to like really make it sit in. And that, it's funny, just like my teacher, I would go see him play. He used to play um, pretty much weekly with Mike Stern downtown mm-hmm. and, um, and they would do these standards and just go into outer space with their just, you know, going all just, mm-hmm. you know, metric modulations all this crazy stuff uh, you know and um and just like hold it together and always come back but then every once in a while they'd break into like they they try to rock out and it would just kind of be embarrassing i just like, <laughs> oh, you're not really that's not that's not that's that's bad you're sitting and, in class and you're like pick on, pick on me pick on me pick on me i know the answer <laughs> yeah 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 so anyway there's you know there's merit to just knowing how to play a stupid backbeat for yeah, sure totally totally Anyway, so I, I so um, while I was in music school, I was in a bunch of bands, and one of them happened to be um, there was a guy named Chris Janata, and my very good friend um, Mike Lustig were in were in a band called Janata. Chris wrote all the songs. It was like a blues rock band, kind of late eighties, you know, just band mm-hmm. and um they got a record deal they made a record they toured they would open up for bigger acts um uh i'm trying to think of i mean they did like a tour with the kinks i mean they've done they've done they did some pretty 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 good um tours 
uh, for a couple of years uh, and then eventually got dropped. Um, their drummer quit. They were just kind of Mike and um, Chris were floundering and they just, and, and Mike said, Hey, would you want to come in and play? Uh, sure. So I would just show up for rehearsals or whatever, or just practice or, or just, you know, just to play around. Chris would bring some songs and we would try them. And then eventually it was like, Oh, let's, you know, let's be a band. And this, what Chris, Chris, um, with all due respect, I really uh, do. Re- he's an incredible, uh, proli- pro- incredibly prolific songwriter. He writes a ton of songs. That's basically what his obsession is. That, you know, when he just sits down with a guitar, he'll start writing something. He'll record a little bit, put pieces together, and write songs. Mm. At the time, he really was. He really just wanted to get signed. He wanted a career in music. So he he thought the way to get a career in music was to get onto a record label, get some support. And then just to be able to do it um, more so than just, you know, he was more concerned about that than just writing something from the heart. So he wrote a lot of stuff that, you know, had all the right pieces, but the soul was sometimes really absent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he started writing uh, these, like he went into like writing these uh, punk esque three chord kind of songs with a little pop element to them. Mm -hmm. And we suddenly got all this attention. Mm. And uh, so it was like flavor of the month kind of deal, like where the band was one completely different thing. Like we had like, you know, two minute guitar solo songs, you know, the the Mm -hmm. whole song, if we played live would last seven minutes was just painfully boring like if i have seen there's been a couple of videos that were floating around i'm just like oh my god How, you know why didn't sarah leave me the, the minute the show was over like what'd you think you know it's over get the fuck out <laughs> what did she say uh, she's like oh it was you've done it again just yeah like- <laughs> yeah she'd just be like i won't be going to the next show yeah she would never go to any of the shows anyway um yeah so then we you know so so these this new batch of songs was you know anyway so then suddenly we were like a punk band you know, and then this is like in the nineties, they were signing everybody. Like if you had a, you know, a bunch of songs and there was some possibility of being, you know, uh, of, of it, you know, being successful, whatever they would, they would sign you. So we got signed on those songs and Chris just started writing in that sort of vein, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I was, I was, I enjoyed playing the songs. They were fun. They didn't necessarily speak to me, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't deep. I don't think Chris would say they were super deep, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they were, I, I, in some regards, they were more confessional than a lot of the other songs he had been write, writing, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a little bit more to them. Um, but then that just kind of like, it just snowballed. We got signed. Um, I decided to leave school to just do that. And let me um, stop you for two seconds. So is the band called Ruth, Ruth, Ruth at this point? Yeah. Okay. Yep. It was Janata. And then, um, they wanted to get away from the name Janata because they had been signed and they didn't want record labels to know mm-hmm. that there was like all this secret, yeah. like, Oh, not we're suddenly punk rockers. So we can't be associated with these, you know, these, these other, you know, well, Taylor Swift and, is still having that problem and she's, uh, you know, people are still calling BS on her for not being a country artist anymore. And it's like, who's that Taylor Swift? Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Anyway, it's so all, you know, that argument seems to never go away. <laughs> yeah, for sure. At the time it was really um, like, there was this whole idea of, you know, uh, 
credibility. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, I mean, it was, it was very real. There were a lot of bands who were selling their souls to record labels and doing whatever the label wanted them to do. And, you know, yeah. So um, we had no integrity. <laughs> well, how did, to the how highest did, bidder. How did the, just because I said the thing about your dad earlier? How did the conversation go with your parents when you said you wanted to leave school to to pursue Ruth Ruth full time? They thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, because we had a record deal in place and everything, we got an advance. We had a little bit of money to start doing it. And they thought how it was much bad. heavy drugs did your parents do that they were just totally cool with this with this life approach, Dave? I'm so I'm so jealous. I think part of it is that we had financial stability. Okay, they knew like right. that, you know, I could always move back home, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if that, if things went, went South and, and they, and I, I had plenty of opportunities or I, mean, I was, I had been working jobs and whatever to, on, on my own. I mean, I, I, they, they weren't concerned that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, I, you know, I would be able, I would be okay if things mm-hmm. fell apart. So they well, just kind of let it happen. So, um, you know, you're sitting in a recording studio that you built, um, and you have hundreds and hundreds of the world's best mics, and th- that's something that you didn't just start doing like three weeks ago. Like this has clearly been a passion of yours for the for a large part portion of your life. Was recording or like sound engineering or anything like that in your head while you were like, was this were these two yeah, things? No, I mean it really. So like when it came time to record. So when we before we got signed with uh, as Ruth Ruth, there was a guy in Suffern, New York, who was interested in managing Chris specifically mm-hmm. and his songs. And so we went to go make a demo. I showed up with my, I had like this 1960s Gretsch crappy drum. It was actually a really nice drum set. Like mm-hmm. now as an engineer, uh, the, the guy was an idiot. The guy who recorded us was mm-hmm. just like, you know, Oh, we've got to get, to get this out of here. And we got to bring in some, you know, more rock looking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and so I only record drum sets that have the sunburst paint paint on them. Yeah. It was, more, <laughs> it was kind of like that. It was kind of like, it needed to look like a brand new mm-hmm. thing, you know? Um, and uh, so he set up, he set up my crappy drum set and put mics around it reluctantly. And, you just was rolling his eyes the whole time. And, uh, and I got canned from the session. They said, you know, we're going to bring in a guy, you know, to do all the, the drum parts for, for Dave's parts. And we'll just, and, um, while it was, who made that call? Who made that call? Oh, the manager. Okay. All right. The manager guy. Yeah. And, um, I didn't really have any skin in the game. It was, it was more just a, it was just an ego blow. But um, at the same time, I had never recorded in a studio before. So I was, I was kind of okay with it. You know, it's mm. like, okay, well, let me see how this is done. Mm-hmm. So it was a real uh, lesson. It was, it was, it was really a great lesson and in, in, in introduction into recording, you mm. know, in retrospect, um, you know, the, I mean, the drum parts that the guy, the guy did, it was just, you know, it was just like, you know like big drums and like big reverb and just horrible sounding uh you know just this just terrible terrible um but that's that's what they were you know again chris was just trying to get a record deal yeah. any way he could so he was ready he was ready to wear any hat that would make that happen you know Mm-mm. so actually i think when when ruth ruth started it was a little bit more authentic it was like it was kind of like he just kind of let go and just decided to have fun for a little while and then boom we got you know it's we were making something that was a little bit more interesting to watch you know mm-hmm. as opposed to this like canned thing that was yeah. he was trying to make this make this product you know right so uh you know they played they actually played a, a like a, a uh, like a 
what do you what do you call it when you do a sh- uh, a show for like a bunch of A and R people, an expose or whatever? Yeah. I don't know, they, they call it something like that, you yeah. know. And they asked that drummer to play. So I went to the show to watch, and I was just like, man, I don't I don't want to be in this band. That guy can be in the band. This band is <laughs> stupid, you know. I was still in school at the time when that was all going. Sadly, on. that's not the way it went for Pete Best. Um, I wish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Pete. <laughs> he got- Poor Pete. yeah yeah for sure anyway um yeah so we did get signed and then i guess so i so when when we went into the studio for ruth ruth i obviously played all the drum parts and got to do all of that but i got to watch the whole process and i got really fascinated with the whole process i also got fascinated with just the infrastructure of the studio i was Mm. fascinated by you know, wow, we got this big soundproof wall, but there's what, you know, we can see through Wow, they're clapping. They're talking over there. I can't even hear what they're saying. This is incredible. How do you, how are you doing that? Why would you want that? Oh, of course the bleed, you know, like all, mm-hmm. just all of these, you know, basic, uh, uh, you know, assumptions or ideas around studio design Yeah, just was suddenly really fascinating to me. Um, and then I just, so I just got to watch the whole process. Oh, you, you, you overdub stuff. You add double vocals. Oh, that's what that sound is. Oh, and you, so the guy just sings the whole song again to make that happen. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. You know, mm. just learning all these basic techniques just by, just by watching. Um, so I just got more and more fascinated by the whole process. Uh, Fast forward a couple of years later, um, I wanted to leave the band and, um, you know, left the band. I had a couple of other, uh, bands that i was playing in and we were in this one rehearsal space that had uh, previous tenants had built a small uh, uh control room about you know it was like um uh maybe eight ten ten feet by six feet it's just you know a little closet mm-hmm. and uh and and i just started proc- procuring gear and we would record rehearsals and and then we started you know i got i actually got a multi-track player it was a, um, um, a DA-88, a Tascam 8-track player mm-hmm. that used these videotapes. And uh, there was ADAT and then DA-88 were the, the big, the two main things mm-hmm. at the time. There was like a lot cheaper, a cheaper alternative than buying like an actual tape machine. Mm-hmm. And um, so we and we started making our own recordings. And, and so I just kind of went, it was just trial by fire, just went in and just, we had, you know, I, I bought two, really nice mic pre's and we would just use those two mic pre's over and over again as we as we layered tracks and then we would bounce tracks down and you know add more stuff and you mm-hmm. know so i just got to learn that way now so was this studio um, this, this studio was in new york this is this was the studio in new york it was you- in a rehearsal space okay. it was in one of those sidewalk grates you'd open it up go down hit your head uh you know get you know tetanus on your you know <laughs> rip open your skull every time you went down the basement and uh yeah it was just this like it was a, it was a literal rat infested basement hole in the ground that we we got all the rats out we sealed up all the holes painted it made it you know made it as nice as possible and it was a, it's still it's actually still i think it's still a studio it's uh at 66 rivington street i think somebody's still operating it as a studio mm. um uh yeah so just kept buying buying gear and then while all that was happening i was working a job uh with uh, i don't know if you ever heard of chow bella gelato mm-hmm. but that was my I, you know i was that that was my income at the time um full disclosure right at that right around that time um years before uh i guess in 
I can't remember. At some point in my dad's career of his business, he handed my sister and me a piece of paper. And he said, this piece of paper has a number on it that looks big, but the paper is, is all the thing is worth. It's, it's basically nothing. It's not, you can't do anything with it, but, um, you know, it's, it was a share in his company. Mm. It was a private company, but it was nothing we could ever sell or transfer or do anything with. So it was all dependent on the success of the company. If the company went bankrupt, the, the paper was, you know, worth more, you know, it was just, it was, it was, you know, right. nothing, right. but, but it was, it was something. more, more of a promissory note than it was like a pro. Well, anything. it was not even a, it was not, it was, I was, I was never, I was never able to like actually cash it in. Oh, okay, I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. So, but the, the company, um, eventually got really successful and they looked for private buyers to, to buy the company because they wanted out. They were ready to just move on to doing something else. Um, and they thought it was worth a lot more than people were offering, which was the smartest thing they've ever done. And so they decided to put together a package to go public on, to go actually sell it on the stock exchange. Mm. And so that changed my life. That was, that was like, we were, you know, living a, very comfortable middle-class lifestyle in the suburbs of New Jersey. And then suddenly um, we all became wealthy Mm. basically. Mm. So my, um, so um, which is a a really kind of dangerous situation to find yourself in, you know, you could really just check out, you know, did you have any thoughts of doing something like that? I mean, what what was your first instinct of like, I mean, not like you were going to go, you know, do something crazy with it. But like, what was your first, what were your thought? What was your thought process? I mean, I don't even know how I would handle something like that. And I'm 41. Well, my first thought process was, you know, this is a huge responsibility. I can't lose this. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to, I got to make sure this is managed properly. And then, then it was like, you know, this, I just felt the weight of the, the responsibility of, you know, treating it with respect and using it wisely, you know? And so what Um, did you put in place? Like how did, what was like the next day when you, when you had that sort of like this awareness, like for you, what was the, like, what sticky note did you put on your, on your desktop to be like, Hey Dave, remember, uh, eat your, eat your Wheaties. Like what was the thing that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it felt like I I kept working, Uh, you know, I didn't feel like I, you know, I I felt like I still, it was, it, it took a long time for it to sink in that, you know, the, the the weekly check from the ice cream store was just like it just didn't matter anymore. Oh, okay. I, I didn't have you know, and I it's an it's it's I I I I want to be public about that. I want you know because it's an extraordinary situation. It it is not a it, I mean it, it's a it's a pretty unique situation. Um, mm-hmm. And I I want to uh, respect it. You know and and do do good with it and there yeah. there are a lot of people who have lots of lots of money that just don't even don't, don't want to talk about it they don't want to think about it i mean i'm private about like what it is yeah, but sure. i can live comfortably without having to have a you know a, a nine to five job basically. well um i mean i want to sort of get into sort of uh, i think how you like the way you took those resources and turned them into what you have now, like you mentioned earlier, like the studio, um, like your first experience in the studio being one of like, 
what I was hearing you say was like the studio was being used in the same way that a drum set was being used. Like you can use a different cymbal, you can use a different hi-hat, you can tune the snare real loose and put a towel over it in the same way that you can put two mics in front of somebody and have them sing and then use the phasing of whatever it is. Like the studio is an instrument too. Um, yeah. And can you talk a little bit about why, like uh, if for folks who don't know much about Guilford sound, you can just go to guilfordsound.com and you can see exactly what it is that when you call it an ivory tower, I mean, it's, it's your dream studio. It's what it's, you literally build it to do all the things that maybe other studios weren't capable of doing or what another studio did really well. But can, can you talk a little bit about how you thought about building the studio, what went into that, and then how you use that studio as a tool, not just for recording, but for community engagement in different ways? Um, you know, I know not just the studio, it's not just the studio that people in Vermont are sort of interfacing with, but it, it has become, through other ways, it has become sort of a focal point in some ways for what you do. And I'm just kind of curious if you can talk about that for a second. <laughs> what did you just say <laughs> let me ask you again well let's i want to get into your advocacy with with what you do with your resources uh maybe this is a two-part question what were you thinking when you built the studio how did you go from like okay i want to build this studio what did you want it to do that nobody else was doing why did you build it the way you did it like what was yeah, your mindset um there? well the i i felt like being in moving to vermont and I can, that's a whole other story, but we don't have to get into too deeply into that. We just basically moved back to where our school was. We knew people up here and we mm -hmm. wanted to get out of the city. So moving back to Vermont afforded us the ability to build something that we, we wouldn't be able to do in a city like New York to on the scale that we, you know, that, right. that this place is, it's a 5,000 square foot facility. The live room is 750 square feet. It's a pretty large live room for mm -hmm. a studio lots of isolation booths. So I just basically, I realized, wow, I, you know, I can build something from the ground up for the cost of what it would, you know, for the price of what it would cost to just buy this a raw space in New York. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the, the opportunity, the, the, you know, the um, kind of possibilities seemed really uh, endless of, you know, what we could do um, for the room. So I just thought of all the fun things that studios have that would make it, you know, uh, really great. The the big motivator for like getting a studio designer was uh, so after the basement studio, I had a studio on Fourth Street called Jarvis Sound. Mm -hmm. um, we we got and this is you know, um, we we were able to get you know a, a really decent console. It's actually the same console we have here. It was a professional sixty four input API, nice, real beautiful console, uh, custom made for the studio. And um, the the when we bought that space on fourth street it had been a studio before it was a project studio for this guy and um the control room had just massive acoustic problems mm -hmm. and um you know you'd make a mix you'd finish it you'd think oh this sounds great and then you'd go into like your car or listen to it <laughs> somewhere else and there would just be this like big puffy muddy mess mm -hmm. and you could simply could not hear that in the control room and it was my first experience to you know understand that how important the acoustics of the room are the listening position you know the control room means controlled sound you know mm -hmm. um on you know small near field monitors things were good but then when you tried to get the full frequency spectrum right you, we would just fail miserably it was really difficult to like translate things you know, things to translate out of that room into the real world so that was my first experience with, wow, okay, so if we're building this place, I want a really acoustically true uh, control room. 
so I reached out to Francis Manzella Designs. Um, I had heard some of his um, mastering rooms that were at uh, Sterling Sound. Uh, Sterling Sound? Uh, mastering House. That He built a bunch of rooms uh, for them. Uh, and then did one or two rooms for MasterDisc. And um, I was really, it was my experience of going into those rooms and hearing a huge difference was the first time that, you know, mm. wow, you, you can really make a huge difference with, uh, you know, so, um, so that, so, so the, the, so that was one of the aspects of, of building this place was I'm, I'm not going to just like find a barn and try to make it sound good. I, I want professional help <clears throat> and we, and we got it. And then with that came, I just basically said, it would be great to isolate everybody. It'd be great to have a large live room and I want a controlled uh, listening environment. And so Fran Manzella put this package together that, you know, hit all those boxes and checked all those boxes. And, um, and then we just added some other fun stuff because it was ground from the ground up. We made an echo chamber that's, that's suspended off the ceiling in the attic. Um, you know, just things that we, you, you would never be able to do um, outside of, you know, if you were uh, trying to do it inside a city. Um, so as the place is being built, it's, you know, all of the other, the, the, the outreach possibilities really started to, I just thought like, Oh, how am I going to, you know, what do I want to do with this place? Mm -hmm. You know, what do I have to do? Do I need Mm -hmm. to, you know, do I have a bottom line? I have to meet every single year. And frankly, the answer was no, I, I did I really didn't need to, you know, Mm -hmm. um, are, do, do I want to do just my projects? No, absolutely not. I just, you know, I, I, I I was just, I love recording. I love recording recording different types of music. I, I love doing voiceovers. I like editing things. I like, you know, just the, all aspects are, I find enjoyable. And, uh, I just, um, so I just had to like, you know, I, I was building it as I was planning how it was going to be used. You know? Was there anything now, in the, in, in... while the, all this was happening, I should mention, I had two very little kids yeah. and, um, Sarah was also starting, Vermont performance lab mm-hmm. of which so percussion was like, I think the third, maybe the third project, yeah. which became this really important arts organization in Southern Vermont. So a lot of my attention while the studio was being built was actually in raising our kids. I was, I was, I wouldn't say I was the primary, but I did take, I, I was definitely doing a lot of the, you know, childcare while Sarah was doing, you know, building Vermont performance lab. And then, as once the studio was built, Vermont Performance Lab was really established, and we started doing all of these, um, you know, studio projects. So mm-hmm. when when Music for Trains first happened, you did no studio work. There was right. no, you know, you rehearsed in a barn. The studio didn't exist. Anyway, so that that really opened my eyes of uh, the, you know, to to the possibility of how the studio could be used for all of these alternative musical, you know, worlds. Um, like like the the you know your your whole biosphere of mm-hmm. um you know new music um that has some funding but not it's not like a rock band camping out mm-hmm. and you know where, where we make bank or you know cover all payroll for the whole year with a right. one month project radiohead is not a 501c3 right they're exactly they're a for-profit exactly. baby <laughs> right um so the studio the studio we built is capable of of accommodating um world a world-class band with an endless budget who wants to camp out here for six months if somebody wanted to do that we would open the door and host them for as long as they wanted to stay for sure um you also built housing on the campus too so there's 
there's housing yeah. associated with the studio that if you know, and it's nice housing. I mean, it's not like you're staying in somebody's you know on a couch <laughs> with somebody's no, it's like, with a blanket. It's a, uh, it's a whole that's a whole other project of a, another kind of dream was building this passive solar house. It's built into the ground. Um, it's and passive solar just basically means that uh, you know it 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 it's it's as close to net zero as you can get with um, you know all the solar gain you get mm-hmm. can can you know heat the place. Um, not to digress, but uh, one example of that is uh, we had an artist who was staying there for, they were doing, they were mixing something for weeks. They were here for like six weeks. And one of the weeks was like the coldest we've had in a long time. It was going down to like negative 20 at night and only getting up to about negative five to zero degrees during the day, freezing, freezing cold. And uh, something happened at the earth house. That's what we call this building. And the contractor who built it, Dave Ross, who's also just kind of like the de facto super now, the poor guy, <laughs> we, I called him up and said, you know, problem. And he went, sure, I'll go over and check it out. And he went over and checked it out and fixed whatever it was. And then he just asked the person who was staying there, how, you know, how, how's it been? They were one of the, one of the first people to stay there over the winter. And she said, oh, it's so comfortable. You know, you wouldn't know that, you know, the house is so sealed so tight, but the air is really fresh and it's just, my room's really comfortable, but, you know, come to think about think, think of it, it's a little chilly in the kitchen and Dave looked at the therm- at the therm- thermostat and it was uh 59 degrees which is pretty chilly in the house you know but that's not like freezing and uh he he went outside and the heat pump that ran the heating that makes up for if you don't get enough solar gain we obviously have central heating in there the heat pump that ran the heating for the common space which was the kitchen the living room and the hallway had tripped out 4 days before so there were four days of negative 20 degree temperatures, sun never barely, you know, even peeking through clouds um, during the day, never getting up above uh, zero degrees and the, and it lost 20 degrees of, of uh, heat. It went from 70 degrees to, or, or no, uh, not even uh, 11 degrees. It went from 70 degrees to 59 degrees over four days. So, you know, if you build, if you build things right, um, that's what you can do. And now could, could everybody build a place like that? No, it's not. It's, it's just, it was ridiculously expensive to, to add all of those layers, which are slowly paying for themselves as, you know, our, our, as energy use goes up yeah. or prices go up, you know, we use less anyway. Well, there's, I wanted to ask you, like, as you were building stuff, I remember there being a couple moments when things were sort of like okay, cool. The earth house is in the ground. Like we got it in there and we're going to like check this thing. And it, there was something like with a, like the sealant, the waterproofing wasn't oh my God. correct. And I remember I was there whenever you like, I think I was in the room or, or there for some reason when you found out about it and you were just sort of like stomping around. And I was like, what happened, Dave? Like, and you were like, we have to tear the earth house out. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, like it just like the idea that you were just sort of like frustratedly stomping around and that was the level of anger you got to like that was like that level of problem is beyond me and i'm kind of curious for you like what were some of the grow like what did you learn by building this that you could have uh, never have fathomed yeah um uh, i don't know i mean that let's we say have to, i have, we a, have to tear the whole thing out we had to take basically take the roof off mm-hmm. um but we were actually, we actually, we ended up settling with that company. And rather than them having tear, tear the roof out, they gave us a new roof um, and just put it over the other one. So the insulation was supposed to be 12 inches and now it's 
24. And just because of the profile of the building, you don't know that there's this, you know, yeah, two yeah. feet of insulation. Okay. So the new water proofing coat went over the other thing. So it wasn't so bad. Um, what have I learned? I've just, I've just learned that, you know, you really have to be patient and that shit just goes wrong all the time. And, um, you know, ultimately you end up getting something cool, but again, gratitude, you know, I just go back to gratitude. What is all this stuff? I, I this is just such a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I really would be comfortable in a studio apartment. You know, mm-hmm. I have all this great stuff and I really love it. And I, I'm not ashamed to just continue to get bring, you know, buy new gear and make this place as good as, as possible and expand and do whatever. But I, I really would be happy, you know, in a, in a small, you know, if, if it all went away, I, I'd be okay. You know? So this yeah. is kind of just this really, it's, it's, it's an, it's an amazing adventure. And so when things go South, yeah, it's frustrating, but you know, I, I do have perspective, I think at least, you know, somewhat of mm-hmm. just like, this is, this is crazy that I'm even allowed, <laughs> allowed to do this. I do kind of look over my shoulder every once in a while waiting for someone to be like, you know, get the fuck out of it, you know, <laughs> or, or that I just like kind of like come to suddenly and I'm under a bridge in front of a cardboard box and I think it's a mixing board. <laughs> but just, it's all just been a figment of my imagination. For the make a wish foundation barges in and is just like, all right, Dave, we got to take it back. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you have, you have terminal cancer. Time to go. Um, well, so no, but yeah, managing all that stuff, I've learned just, um, you know, how important it relationships are really important. I mean, I've had a 12 year, no more 15 year relationship with Dave Ross at this point, yeah. you know, and we talk almost daily um, whether we're talking about just shooting the shit or just talking about some construction thing, you know? Yeah. So I'm in, I'm in the process of we're renovating a building downtown in Brattleboro to, uh, we're outfitting a dance studio mm. in the upstairs for the Brattleboro school of dance who otherwise wouldn't be able to, you know, outfit a new place. So, and we're just doing it and it feels great. I just love that we can yeah. do that kind of thing. Well, I want to, I want to, I have two questions, two more questions for you and then I'll let you go. I've already swallowed up about an hour of your time. Um, the first one is um, more, and they both of them are revolve around relationships, which is what you just mentioned. The, but first is more of a nuts and bolts. What, in terms of a relationship between an ensemble or a, and a solo act or whoever's going to come in and record something with you, and you as the, um, whether or not you're actually engineering the session, but you as the person who's going to open the door and say, come on in, let's get you set up. What is the best way for an artist to set up a great relationship with a recording engineer or a recording house, wherever you're going, what's the, what's the like sort of best first impression you can make barring actually sounding good and doing your job. Once you're all set up, what's the, what is, what are some things that you've come across that people have done it well and people who have not, you don't need to name names, but like, no, I think, I think the most important thing is to be extremely prepared and to know that when you come into a place like that, this, you can sound like, if you sound like shit, before you get here, you're going to sound terrible. It's going to be a great representation, <laughs> a crystal clear representation of dog shit. So <laughs> you, so when bands are prepared, it goes so well. There's not, I, I, there's nothing more frustrating than a band that comes in. They're not prepared. They play out of tune. They're out of time. And then they look at you and go, the snare drum sounds a little tinny. And you're like, the snare drum is not the problem. So, and and there's so many sessions where I can put one mic in front of the drum set and it's done, you know, Mm -hmm. like the person plays balance. You, you get the whole thing. I've done whole records in two days from, you know, tracking overdubbing and mixing. 
that are my favorite records and they sound sonically sound huge and beautiful and lush and just everything's there mm -hmm. and it's because they showed up prepared so i mean the biggest thing is if you're going to come to a place like this to respect the fact that the gear is it's just a means of getting something onto a format to listen back to it mm -hmm. so it's you know there are all these fun bells and whistles in the studio and you can do you know quote unquote studio magic and fairy dust and add fun effects and all that kind of stuff but you have to have a foundation to work with if the if the initial performance is bad you know there's nothing you you can do with that so there's nothing more satisfying than convincing somebody you know we'll have people say you know i, I have fifteen hundred dollars and you know our uh, just our 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 book rate is fifteen hundred bucks. You get two engineers, uh, you know, an engineer, an assistant who also operates as a runner who can go out. You get twelve hours in the studio, mm -hmm. um, and and you know, and we'll and we'll say, okay, you have fifteen hundred dollars, and you want what do you want to do? And they'll say, I want to make a whole record. And you go, okay, well, that's probably not possible unless you know. Let, let's just you know, just try to walk you know walk them through what what they can get for their time in the studio what the and what they expect mm -hmm. so a lot of it is just lowering expectations mm -hmm. uh and, and or and also just and raising their own expectations of how prepared they should be once they get here so a lot of times i'll talk people out of even coming here initially you mm -hmm. know i'll mm -hmm. say well let me hear where you're at and i'll give uh advice about you know well, that sounds again, rehearsing more. again, I think just the idea that we're talking about relationships here, like I think that is a relationship, that's a good way to approach a relationship from your end too. You don't want them wasting their money. No, I really respect the fact like, that they're saving up their money to come to a place like this and I want them to be happy. Right. So, and it, it always, uh, when people are prepared, everybody leaves really happy and everything, it just sounds better. It makes it easier. You know, you, you, you can, you can shine up stuff and make it and you know edit things and get things lined up and there's so much you can do these days to kind of frankenstein something together but and and successfully you know i have some i've done some records where things were just horribly out of tune out of time and all this kind of stuff and we've just you know just done the you know iron the the, the sledgehammer approach on, on everything and just lined it all up and you know you'd be hard pressed to tell that it wasn't played that way you know that it wasn't but uh um I've benefited from a few of those sessions with you, Dave. <laughs> yeah, In full yeah. disclosure. Well, it depends on the piece, you know. Yeah, full disclosure. Yeah, so, I mean, some of these pieces you guys are handed are so challenging. Um, I mean, there are, there, so there have been some classical pieces where a composer has come in and, um, you know, it's the nature of that whole world where these musicians aren't necessarily prepared enough to play the piece that they've been, they've been given, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll be doing measures at a time. So I hand them all this, you know, this just these ribbons of just, you know, just pieces of paper that this guy's going to glue together back when he when he goes back yeah. to his uh, his home studio and come up with something. So that's um, so, yeah, relationship wise. I mean, I would just say that. Um, it's it's, you know, it's all just mutual respect, just having respect for the place. I've had people come here who have said, you know, well, it's way too expensive. You know, can you cut me a break? Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, like, n you know, nickel and diming what has already been nickel and dimed, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm basically, you know, running the studio at a loss, 
you know, I'm, I'll, and I'll explain to them what you're asking me to do is pay my employees and accommodate your the price. You know, like I'm basically paying for you to be here right now. Mm-hmm. You know, which is really hard to convey. I think, do you have a Do you have a thing like when you when you give costs for your studio time? Do you have the sort of like this is the actual cost, and then this is what I'm charging because this is what I want to charge, or because this is the going rate, or I mean, some sometimes regardless of what you want to charge, the going rate is depending on the economy or whatever is a certain, you know. I, I can tell you right now that we're, yes, we are very transparent and there is no margin. So when we charge $1,500 mm-hmm. and I have the staff here to run the session, when you take into, into consideration, you know, just what it costs mm-hmm. to keep this building running, that's how much it costs to just be here with that staff. I will not pay people mm-hmm. uh, a non-living wage. So yeah. we pay people well, whether we have sessions here or not. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm willing to, to do that. Yeah. So, um, so because of that, I expect other people to respect my employees as well and, you know, expect them to, to get paid what they get paid. Yeah. So when the sheet says, you know, this, it's an added, you know, X amount of dollars a day, that goes right into the pocket of the employee who's, who's doing that, you know, part of the, so yeah, there's, there is no markup. It's, it's basically, we're hoping to operate at cost. Mm -hmm. If we can do that, I'm really happy. It's not, uh, it's, you know, somewhat like a nonprofit in that regard. Although granted, if we, if we were able to book out the whole year, um, it would start turning more of a profit, but I would also have to add, more employees. So the margin is like, there's, it's a very, very slim margin. We're not a nonprofit. We are a for-profit company, but we don't make a profit. You yeah, know, yeah. we're just, we're really just breaking even here. What, what so. is, what is the, um, I mean, uh, in terms of the, the sort of studio artist relationship, uh, you know, I've been, I've been in different studio situations where different engineers will, um, give opinions on your playing, or on something, or on the sound of what you're doing, without any knowledge of why you're making that sound, or what piece you're talking, or what piece you're like. You know, playing a drum in Paul Lansky's music or Steve Mackey's music is different than playing a drum in, say, Zanakis. And we think about that stuff all the time. But also, I know artists come in and they're just like, "I want an SM58 on my drum because that's all I record with." And you're like, "Bro, why did you come here then?" Like, yeah, and. Like, where do you, how do you navigate that world as an engineer to sort of like, uh, sort of step into producer world a little bit without stepping on any toes? Like, how do you, oh, how do you navigate I'm, that? I'm actually a believer in really trying out what people want to do. If somebody mm. comes in and they're dead set on putting an SM57 on snare drum and that's all they've ever done and that's what they do, great. If they know where they want the overheads to go and that's the only way they've ever done it, great. So I, I'm willing to try, but I'm also willing to say, uh, you know, let me, point out that this whatever is not working or or you know whatever you're just communicating you know but i do i do um i don't believe that i know the best way to do all of this stuff and i also believe that artists are you know many people are now so much more well versed in the recording technique process Mm -hmm. it can be a little frustrating though sometimes where you know it's like i'm not telling you how to hold your bow on your cello don't tell me where to put the fucking microphone i'm gonna get (laughs) your cello recorded it'll be okay it's gonna sound like your cello just just back the fuck off and let me just and there's not it's not rocket science you know there's like there's uh 
there's only so much you can get out of, you know, when you hear the cello in the room, does it sound like you want it to sound great? Well, if we put a mic, you know, somewhere near you within three, three to six feet of your cello, you know, the closer we get, the less room influence, the farther away, you're going to hear more of the room, you know, we're going to get a cello, you know, so I'm kind of a meat and potatoes guy. I think that, Mm. you know, I, there, there's, I, there's, there can be self-aggrandizing where it's like, you know, it, it doesn't, the engineer doesn't feel important unless they put six mics around something. I'm more of the, I'm kind of a pragmatist where, and maybe this is self-aggrandizing, but where, you know, if you put the more mics you put up in front of something, the more phase issues you have. Um, it's just, it becomes difficult to, you know, keep things cohesive and sounding mm-hmm. real. You, you can get something that sounds, you know, the impression of a cello with cool ass elements to it or uh, that, that may not be, you know, proper or correct. And if that's what you're going for, you, you can get, you know, really cool sounds still, but I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not a necessarily a purist. I just, I'm a pragmatist. I mm-hmm. like things to be, um, I want to get going. I want to get to the performance rather right, than right. dealing with, you know, dealing with uh, listening to the kick drum for 12 hours, you know, <laughs> That yeah. said, there's some engineers where like when they're real sticklers for making sure all that stuff works before people actually hit record, um, it makes it a lot easier on the other end too. So mm-hmm. sometimes that bites me in the ass where I just, I, I, sometimes I just want to get going. I'm just like that, that's, that's good enough. And, you know, we will be able to, you know, make that sound really good later. I've, it's, it's enough of uh, enough of an impression of the drum set. I think we're good. You know? I've been seeing this meme going around uh, social media and it's, it's a recording engineer sitting at the desk with like smoke coming out of ears and he's just screaming, fix it in pre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the musicians yeah, we were have, always like, we'll nudge, a, it, uh, we'll nudge it Batman, in post. You know? We have a Batman Robin, Robin saying, fix it in the mix. And he's in the mid mid sentence saying that and Batman slapping and saying, <laughs> no, we'll fix it now. You know? <laughs> You'll fix that shit right now. Um, yeah. Well, I think that just uh, harkens to your sound good before you come in the room, and that is going to fix most of your problems. Oh my god, I can't end. tell you how many times you're like you're like checking the line, you're checking the mic, you try other mic pre's, you're plugging in compressors, you're EQing, and then you're just like, oh, the source sounds like shit. This person <laughs> sucks. There's, there's nothing I can do, you know. And then another the other example is you you know you plug in something that's broken. And it sounds amazing. And like, you know, only later you're like, oh shit, there's like ground hum on that thing. But listen to that performance, you know, <laughs> yeah. let's figure out how to get rid of the ground hum, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really true. Like the sort, when the source is really good, things go really smoothly and it just sounds good. It's just, it's incredible, you know? Well, I think that's a good place to leave the recording thing. And now I want to ask you one final question, but it is um, something that's been on my mind, I think, for a long time with you personally, but given the sort of events in society recently and in the last especially the last five years where people generally are having a hard time talking to each other and developing relationships with each other because somebody owns a gun or somebody is in the NRA or somebody voted for Trump or somebody is pro-abortion. Not, I don't know people who are pro-abortion, but people who are pro-choice or pro-life and like, that's just a deal breaker for everybody. And something about you in the way, and I, I said this to Sarah too, but I feel like there's a difference in the way that you do it than the way Sarah does it. And I'm very curious if you can just talk about, like you live in a, a, in a rural Vermont community. We, we came up and did the gun show project there um, and got to meet some hunters. We talked to a, a police officer from the area and everywhere I went, I was just struck by your personal ability to regardless of your privilege and your, your status and your upbringing in life and the things you've been given, 
you seem to, with a scalpel, just slice right through the bullshit and are able to talk to people and develop relationships um, very quickly and that last for a long time. And I'm just like, and not to say that there's never been a complication in that you've never had a fight with somebody and never disagreed and never ended a relationship or anything, but is that is the way you talk to people in your community around you? Um, is it a like? Is are you consciously trying to to see people as holes, or is it rather than a like sort of just an idea they had? Like how how do you navigate the world you live in? Because you are you're an artist living in living in rural Vermont, and I think if I was just going to paint with a broad brush, I would say, well, that doesn't work. You know, like how can that possibly work? But it does, and it can, and it has for a very long time with with you and Sarah in particular. But for you, can you talk a little bit about just your mindset? Yeah, you know, and what's you funny is uh, you know, since we moved here, um, I, I've um, I've been acutely aware of just how how everybody, so many people know. There's so much crossover, so uh, you know, I've been aware of you know what I say, who I cut off, who, you know, like you, you know, when you're in New York, you, you can be relatively anonymous to some degree. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's easier to be a dick, you know, mm-hmm. and I've definitely been a dick, you know, at, at, for, for whatever reason, or, or I've just been much more aggressive, you know, waiting in line before they had the Metro cars waiting in line to buy subway tokens, line of you know i'm next in line somebody comes up there's a line of 12 people somebody comes up and puts their money in the thing and grab their money throw it on the ground you know fuck you get in the back of the line i'm not going to do that here i would let the person go in and just be like okay you know i I can let that you're going to see that person later i'm sorry you're going to see that person probably sooner than later in vermont than you would in new york you know like yeah and so they're going to remember that you're the person who grabbed that money out of your hand and that is going to color everything every interaction you have you know yeah yeah i mean i just don't have those kind of confrontations here um and i i so that's kind of led to i i've like slowly learned how important it is to just respect people and really get to know somebody uh that the you know the skin their their you know, their bumper stickers, their, whatever they have, whatever they're doing is just, a, it's, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a soul in there on all, all these people, you know, to, to some extent, I think there's a level of psychosis right now that there are some people that are just not, there is no reasoning. Um, so there's no reason to even have a dialogue right now, which is, which is scary. I mean, I really do believe that we're living in a time where fascism is on the rise and some of these people are just who are in my community and around are just i'm i'm just simply not gonna engage at all you know mm. so um but i uh at least for now you know i think that the like once the source of the psychosis goes away i'm hoping over time there will be a, a rec a reckoning or a you know a healing or something you know a reversal i'm hoping mm-hmm. um I don't have very high hopes, but I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, uh, there, I, I've learned since moving here, I've really learned to, I've just, I've learned to appreciate all different kinds of people. So all of these, you know, pre these preconceived notions of what's who somebody is based on whether they're wearing fatigues, a tie dye or, a, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's, um, that's really disintegrated quite a bit um, just because, you're just, you just, I, I don't, I don't even know why I've interacted with all these different 
people. Some of it is just not, really not by choice. It was just, I mean, because we bought this big piece of land, mm-hmm. suddenly all of these people who hunt, um, who are, who tend to be more, if, if you're just going to paint with a broad stroke, um, you know, like rural, uh, um, people who you know and it's an easy stereotype to just say redneck you know or whatever but they're not necessarily rednecks at all but that's that's you know with a broad stroke that's what, so uh, it's a whole you know group of people that i otherwise probably wouldn't wouldn't have as of a meaningful relationship with you know and just like all groups there's always uh surprises of what you'd think they think and how it's just it can be actually you know just just the opposite you know i know some really progressive people who are our hunters, you know, um, and, and live in that, that world. What am I trying to say? I don't know. I just, I was, I'll just give an anecdote for me. We were, um, before we went hunting, we were hanging out and and I'm blanking on the names. So maybe you can fill them in. There were, there were Hank and Dickie Garland, Hank and Dickie Garland. And then John Hunt was the one, was the other hunter that, that Eric went out with. Um, but I remember I th- who was the one that hunt that also hunted like bison or or elk in Wyoming. Oh, was that um, Travis Slade, the roofer? He was an older guy, older guy. Um, oh well, the Hank Hank lives in Wyoming. Okay. I guess he would do some elk hunting out there too. Yeah. And he was telling us how he you know he shoots these elk with like a fifty caliber or something or other, and he he was talking about how like it, you know, and I'm having this conversation, and and I remember saying like, "What do you think of the NRA?" And he's like, "I'm not a member." And I immediately, and this was, we were doing a show about, about the Sandy Hook shooting and the entire social media world was like NRA, NRA guns and NRA were tied together in this way that you had to make the assumption that if you owned a gun, you were an NRA member. That's not true clearly, but that was the sort of overarching. So when I was having this conversation, I expected Hank to just be like, oh yeah, the NRA is this, this, and this, and here's what I believe. And he was just like, yeah, I left them a long time ago. And I was like, what? And yeah. he didn't really go into much de- – he just was like, yeah, they didn't speak to me and I just felt like it was a waste of money. So I – you know. But – so it, it it caught me off guard in this way that I didn't quite know how to like – and then he was – and then he's just like, so what are you guys writing? You know, and like we started having this conversation about like these weird abstract pieces and conspiracy theories. And to me, the thing that was – what I learned from that moment was that I actually avoid a lot of conversations out of assumptions and fear. And that sort of dislodged for me this like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. What I I have broad brushes too, and I need to yeah. use them less if I can. And getting to know Hank and um and um Dave? Dicky. Dicky, Hank and Dicky and John, like I still correspond with John. John made us a whole set of wooden spoons that he carved, and we yeah, still use the them to this day, you know. And I think had I not had those conversations out of fear, I would regret it. And I just am like, for you, is there any moment, like what for you, like, has there been any particular thing of like, where you, where you had an assumption about your community and it was completely upended? I mean, you're not a, yeah. Vermont, you're not a Vermonter. That was, you're that not- was a big one for me too. I mean, the fact that, you know, he also, um, and I feel like maybe you should beep out their last names, but um, you know he also. You don't, was, I, we just said their first names. I did. We didn't say their last names. I I said their last names. Oh, okay, I'll 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 edit it out earlier. I'm sorry, but That's um, fine. you know that he's he doesn't believe necessarily that or that there should be some sort of regulation around assault rifles. You know, um, 
So, and that, that, that again was surprising that, you know, that he wasn't just like, everybody should just be able to do whatever they want, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so that, that, that was, and again, you know, my, my own, you know, fear slash prejudice, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think working through that fear is the biggest thing I make a lot of, I think one of the reasons why I get along with people is because I'm terrified of, of, uh, people, um, attacking me (laughs) like it goes back. So I'm really good at playing nice which and I so I and I'm and I I've learned over time how to be tactful and actually con- confront people with with tact mm-hmm. but I definitely err on you know being not not cutting through and saying you know it's uh, it takes a while for me to get up the courage to you know actually ask the the tough question you know well you also um, it also you also strike me as somebody who's like yes you're, you're sort of like you want to play nice but but I do feel like there's a strong sort of foundation under that of like, there's also a desire to build trust first and yeah. somebody's going to like, somebody isn't going to call you out as viciously if they trust you. They'll yeah, sort it's of, really true. you can have a good conversation that way. And, and you know, this, like the fact that you've invested so much in your community with, you know, Brattleboro music center and this new dance uh, space you're building, like whether or not people say it, that, that is a, there's currency of trust there. And yeah. it sort of radiates out in other ways that maybe aren't completely predictable. But I, th- I think it's, tr- it's infectious too, man. I mean, when you do, I've just seen like when you, when you treat people with respect and you're positive and you, you know, try to try to move things forward in a, in a positive way, boy, it just, it just grows. It makes other people want to do the same thing, you know? So yeah. there are other people in our community who, who give and do a tremendous amount of service, and that's been hugely influential on me to just see these people mm. do it. I'm also seeing our, you know, our population is aging out. A lot of people are getting, they're getting older and they're, they, they, they're either dying or retiring from some of these volunteer positions and this new, we're, we're the new guard, you know, mm. we're, we're, I, I just turned 50 and here we are, you know, it's time, it's time to step up and continue to serve. So well, you don't look a day over seventy-three, Dave. <laughs> Help to stay, yeah. So stay, stay looking as uh, haggard self for the next uh, um, twenty years. Well, Dave, I I have stolen way too much of your time. This is really fun, and we we haven't had this formal of a conversation without really uh, vulgar vulgar commentary. And maybe we'll do podcast part two, and then people can see how we really are um, with each other. Um, but I really appreciate your time. Is there? Can you? Um, just like where can folks, if they want to learn more about Guilford Sound or the Broadway um, Music Center is another organization that you guys advocate uh, with and for and the Boys and Girls Club. And can you just lay out where folks can find out about this stuff if they want to learn more? Sure. Well, Guilford Sound, guilfordsound.com. Um, the Brattleboro Music Center is BMC Vermont, bmcvt.org. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, basically a music school slash per, uh, they do, do performances as well. Um, I'm also pretty passionate about Groundworks, which is a, a place that we, we've been heavily involved in helping them build a new um, shelter. Unfortunately, we still need shelters. There's a big homeless mm. population here. Uh, lots of like homeless working mothers. Uh, you know, it's again, stigma. It's really easy to just paint with a broad stroke. Like, you know, if you're homeless, there's, you know, you deserved it somehow or you're, you're a hobo or whatever. And um, there's just there's a lot of working poor people who are just working um, with, you know, kids. And uh, anyway, so we're, we're building this beautiful new shelter. It's really exciting. So Groundworks is a, an organization I'm really passionate awesome. about right now, and they need all the help they can get. 
um, and they they do just tremendous work for our community. The the goal is to basically get people in houses, get them in houses. I'll, you get them into a house, and things can really start to change. Is and there, I really again going back to you know what I was saying earlier that there are all these things that just happened for me. I just I had a roof over my head. I didn't have to think about that stuff growing up. And there's a whole population of people that that's all they think about is whether they're going to have a roof over their heads and what a difference it makes. You can really change somebody's life by just giving him, giving them this inkling of stability. And it just goes and, you know, it, it no, nobody wants to be a deadbeat, you know, or the, this idea of just being a deadbeat. And when you put people in, in houses and give them, give them, you know, just basic needs. Wow. It makes a huge difference, you know? So that's an organization I'm really passionate about right now. It's a groundworks collaborative as I think is the full title. I don't know what their website is, but they're, they're a Vermont organization. I'll find it and put a link in the, in the sort of uh, description of the podcast. So folks want to donate or. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. I can send that to you. Um, Yeah. And then another organization I've, I, I belong to and I'm passionate about is called community house Mm. and, um, uh, small state, so small number of beds. They they have six beds for kids who are coming out of uh, being taken out of really dangerous situations, and unfortunately, the, the demand is super high right now. Um, you know, kids who are basically uh, you know who need uh, uh, to temporarily leave their folks for whatever reason um, get to stay in this wonderful place in Brattleboro. It's a, it's a, it's a house. The unexpected or the unintended consequence of this COVID lockdown is like, and I had this thought immediately was like, if I was in an abusive household, this is my, oh my God. this is my worst nightmare. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you get it's to go trapped. to school for eight hours a day and you're not at home with your parents who you loathe or you're terrified of or whatever. And like terrified of, yeah. Oof. Like I see very, I haven't seen hardly any conversation around that that yeah sort of a uh, issue but man it's well, chilling dave um thank you so much this was yeah thank you this was really fun tell sarah i said hey and um, i hope t- it was focused enough i t- i tend to you know veer so well dave look now i have now i have questions <laughs> <laughs> well i, I did want to i did want to mention uh vermont performance yeah. lab too because that was just a huge that that really also um opened the door for me just in terms of like what was possible at the studio. Mm. Um, so I, I, that, you know, and Sarah is just such a force and a powerhouse when it comes to organizing things. And, um, you know, the state's lucky to have her now as a legislator. I definitely miss her, uh, working on the, I mean, although there, there were lots of conflicts with like trying to, you know, who's going to get the housing. So we, we actually lost a lot of big commercial sessions because of, uh, so percussion and other, 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 you know, other projects. But, uh, you know, I think we're better for it. I think it's been really enriching, you know, you really rallied uh, that one, Dave. Good days. job. What's that? <laughs> you really, you really brought that one home in a good way there. Like, uh, <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> Leave me with a big old pile of guilt on my shoulders. For <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have said so percussion. Oh, it's you're true, right though. There, so. It's true. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so I did want to mention Vermont Performance Lab. but All right, well, Dave, you stay healthy and safe, and I, it, I wish every day that we could get together and hang in person, and I cannot wait to, yeah. to do it again. I'm ready, so, man. Just until then, vaccine. yeah. Oh, my God, I can't wait. Well, until then, Dave, stay health, healthy and safe, and I can't wait to chat soon. Say hi to Stephanie. I'll talk to you soon. We'll do. See you, buddy. Peace. 
Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.